Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Welcome, everyone, to the 55th episode of The Crux. Good morning, Gary. How are you doing today? I understand it's a little rainy in the Northeast. Yeah, you know, we've had an early summer here, but now it's a kind of a gloomy day, Mike. Well, we're still struggling to stay above freezing here in Calgary, <laughs> just like our beloved Yankees uh, are struggling to get back to playing 500 baseball. <laughs> I, I think I'm going to be more right than you are on the win projection. Uh, yeah, at least out of the gate, it appears that way. We have as our guest today, the communications director of the Boston Athletic Association, Kendra Butters. The Boston Athletic Association is the organizer and has been the organizer since the 1800s, late 1800s, the Boston Marathon. Always a great event, one in which one of my daughters, Dorothy, is run in <laughs> and usually takes place this time of year on Patriots Day in Massachusetts. That will not be the case this year, but we'll learn more about that from Kendra when she joins us. Before we do that, let's turn to the news. Now, I want to give a little bit of an update. In our last episode, we talked about the aggressive communications tactics that Amazon was taking in the midst of an effort by the retail, wholesale, and department store union, the RWDSU, to organize an Amazon warehouse in Alabama. This past week, nearly 1,800 employees, I think it was 1,798 employees at Amazon's Bessemer, Alabama warehouse voted to oppose the union. As these matters go, you know, the battle is never over, at least it's right. not over in this instance. And the RWDSU is submitting objections to the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, based on some of Amazon's conduct during the election. Gary, that said, one wonders whether the vote and, and, and what transpired may actually signal a direction for communications tactics that other tech companies might take against organizing efforts in the future. That is, they might look at what transpired and sure. say, well, look how aggressive Amazon was. In your mind, Gary, is that a good thing? No, Mike. And and look, I, I worked for a company, General Electric, that was very aggressive in what we would call union avoidance. But it was, uh, I always thought we were an information-based, fact-based approach to places where we didn't think we needed a third party in between us and our employees. And, and that's truly how the company felt about it. I, I would say this, I, I thought there was some intimidation, you know, personally, just mm -hmm. looking at the Amazon and I hope the Amazon campaign, I hope it doesn't spread to other companies taking a look at this and saying it's a winning approach, right, Mike? But on the other hand, I, I have been doing some reading about what happened in Bessemer, Alabama, and what the unions are going to do in response. By the way, I never knew until I followed this election that Bessemer was an old steel town. Yeah. You know, and that's where the old U.S. steel plant, that's where the Amazon warehouse is. So obviously there's some history of unionization yeah. on that site. But what I read from the union leaders may mean that companies won't have the opportunity to be as aggressive on the ground with union organizers in that union leaders saying they're going to take less of a plant by plant, warehouse by warehouse approach, Mike, mm -hmm. and more of what they call a ground and air war to demonstrate what they feel is wrong in their eyes. So it sounds like the union's going to get more aggressive. Exactly. Exactly. By ground, they meant, you know, more walkouts right. to protest conditions in the workplace in, in Amazon warehouses, for example. And then this was the interesting part to me. The air was more aggressive PR campaigns to point to what they felt are the issues at Amazon and presumably elsewhere. And of course, primarily one of the issues is what people are paid in these warehouses. You know, Amazon 
probably won this this vote because they do pay $15 an hour, which is, you know, double the federal minimum wage, but still it doesn't address that $15 an hour translates into $31,000 a year. Mm-hmm. It doesn't address the big issue that we face in the country is what is a middle-class job look like? And so the change in tactics that union leaders might take is going to mean more defense, playing more defense on the part of some of these big companies, I think, if indeed the union follows through on it. Well, what you hope is it doesn't escalate like our politics, right? And there's just more noise, but signifying nothing. And as I said, when we first talked about this, I think the, the, the big issue in these circumstances is how does the company actually speak with and engage its own employees. Yes, you need to protect your your brand and, 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 and be truthful and share information, maybe publicly, but uh, some unfortunate, uh, I think things happened. We'll know a little bit more after this challenge with the NLRB. Yeah. And, and Mike, I just want to emphasize, I think that's exactly right. You know, so kudos to Amazon for paying 15 bucks an yep. hour. Yep. But at the same time, that steel plant for a lot of the hourly workers there paid $35. Mm-hmm. That's the difference that we're seeing in U.S. jobs in places like Bessemer. And that's something that needs to be addressed because $31,000 a year, I think, is like half the median income mm-hmm. in this yeah. country. And, yeah. and it's just not survivable for a family, $31,000 a year. Shifting gears, there's a, another piece of news this past week, uh, President Joe Biden unveiled a series of executive actions dealing with guns. You know, this is coming on the heels of a spate of mass shootings. I I can remember you and I and others being appalled when we saw saw these uh, shootings in the Atlanta suburbs back in the middle of March, focused on Asian populations. Mm -hmm. Then we saw other shootings in Boulder, Colorado, up until even this past week when there were shootings in, in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Among his many proposed You know, Biden is directing now the Justice Department to tighten regulations associated with purchases of so-called ghost guns, which are these untraceable firearms assembled from kits. He's also proposing what they call evidence-based community violence intervention. And he nominated a gun control advocate, David Chipman, to lead the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. Predictably, you know, the NRA put out out a statement that Biden has his sights on restricting the rights of law-abiding gun owners while ignoring criminals and suggested that Biden's actions could actually lead to the surrender of lawful property, as they mm. say. Not to be outdone, the House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy added, President Biden plans to trample over our constitutional rights by executive fiat. He is soft on crime, but infringes on the rights of law-abiding citizens. A lot of this sounds like more of the same. What we've heard over and over again for at least the last decade, if not uh, two or more, what can be done if anything, on an issue like this to kind of cool the rhetoric, maybe depoliticize the topic and seriously address the issue? Am I I being naive here? Yeah, gee, Mike, asking me just, that's such a simple question. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, when will there be peace in the Middle East? Yeah, you know, but 25, American Journal of Medicine, Americans are 25 times more likely to die of gun violence than in any other wealthy country. So there's that. The majority of Americans, by a, by a big majority, favor small steps like background checks mm-hmm. on gun purchases. So how do you reconcile that? And, I, and the word you use with McCarthy is minority, and it is really minority rule on, on guns, on simple things like background checks. I don't know, Mike. I, I, I do know this, that real progress on guns, you know, what Biden took were sort of baby steps, but He's doing what he can. Real progress on guns requires true bipartisanship, the willingness to work together back after President Reagan, the assassination attempt, the Brady Bill, that was Mm -hmm. bipartisan. Yep. 
And I don't know, I, I really thought after Newtown, where so many young people were killed, Newtown, Connecticut, that we were, that was going to spur this country. I thought the same after the, the shooting at the Florida high school. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. So, so I don't know the answer because bipartisanship seems a long way away, Mike. Okay. Mm -hmm. But is it, is, is education about this, what the second amendment truly says and what was intended? I mean, it's held up as inviolate that it can't be changed. Nothing can be changed in this area because of the second amendment. When the second amendment is one sentence and that right. one sentence is a well-regulated militia, comma, mm -hmm. being necessary for the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Yeah. And that, well, it, you know, the history, I mean, obviously, you know, right. we, we, this was created at a time when you didn't have a full standing army. And, and so the context is so different. But nevertheless, I think that, you know, there are some people that aren't going to give an inch here. But I, I, I do think you, you're on to something. This needs to be an educational process yeah. that we need to awaken people to the notion that, it, you know, it's, it's okay to want to hunt. It's not okay for certain types of firearms to even exist, on the other mm -hmm. hand. You know, and that's what the NRA started at, as, mm -hmm. like, which, which was a, a sporting. Right. And then in the 70s or so, it turned into this conservative yeah. movement. So yeah. I, I just think anytime you're trying to make some progress on a tough issue, you start with education. Yeah. And but uh, it's going to be it's going to be yeah. tough. Another issue that surprisingly became highly politicized over the last week was United Airlines found itself defending its plans to increase diversity among its pilots as they announced this new effort that they had underway it created a lot of you know social media ire uh, you know the airline had said on on uh, earlier in the week that it it had plans to train 5,000 pilots in its flight academy by 2030, and that its aim was to have half of those students be women or people of color. Mm -hmm. And United's flight school is meant, you know, to provide training to pilots or to prospective pilots with little to no experience. But some Twitter users started arguing that United Airlines should focus on hiring the best for the job, not taking diversity into account. One social media user said, and my guess is it's, you know, it's, it's a conservative, mm -hmm. but said the, the, the carrier is putting customers' lives at risk in the name of being woke. You know, and the reality is, is this is a training program. You know, I'm sure there's testing on the back end. So in response, United Airlines has been clarifying, and I'll quote, all the highly qualified candidates we accept into the academy, regardless of race or sex, will have met or exceeded the standards we set for admittance. So, Gary, did United Airlines do anything wrong here, or is this a case where the criticisms don't fly? Well, I, I would say, Mike, I say, you know, congratulations to United Airlines for A, doing it in the first place, and B, for the communications, which I think have been very good around this. So I did a, a little research, and it takes you, you know, a couple seconds, <laughs> like it took me forever. The Pilot Institute, which is a collection of, of membership association for pilots, say today that globally all 6.4% of pilots are, are women. In the US, for example, 1% of US pilots are black women. So what United is talking about here is creating opportunity for a larger group of qualified people. That's what it's doing. And more so it's putting its money where its mouth is with some scholarships and uh, I think they're partnering with Sally May mm -hmm. to offer loans to ensure that, you know, no eligible applicants are left out of the program because they can't afford it. Mm -hmm. So I say terrific program. They should not be cowed by people who are twisting it in sort of these culture wars that we see on everything these days. And I say, 
good for the program, good for the communications. Yeah, and when you think about it, you know, I mean, the, probably the target audience they're going after are Gen Zs, those that are in our colleges and universities today, yes. that age group. Yep. And, 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 you know, in the U.S., clearly that's at least 50% women. And, and, and in terms of sort of racial and ethnic minorities combined, now we're at a tipping point where they account for 50% of the Gen Z population. Mm-hmm. So this shouldn't be all that complicated. And as, as you said, kudos to United Airlines. Now, on another matter, from a business in politics perspective, this was a very interesting week. And you and I sort of traffic throughout our careers in sort of both both spheres. And early in the week, we have Jamie Dimon, chairman and CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase. You know, on a on a revenue basis, his company is the world's largest bank. But he published his latest shareholder letter. And he called on companies to play a larger role in developing strong public policy, which can have a greater impact on society. And it's really kind of interesting, given the backdrop of Georgia and everything else in recent weeks. And then on the other hand, we have Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell after being questioned about corporate denouncements of the Republican-backed efforts in Georgia to alter the state's voting access procedures, said corporate America should stay out of politics, (laughs) only to clarify later by saying, I'm not talking about political contributions. I'm talking about taking a position on a highly incendiary issue like this. So, So Gary, What are we to make of all of this? Here you've got the chairman of the largest bank says corporations need to be more involved. Then you have the leader of the Republicans in the U.S. Senate saying, stay away, but we'll take your money. How should we read this? You know, Mike, this this idea that McConnell saying, (laughs) please be quiet and send me your money is just, I just, the the height of hypocrisy. I, 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 look, Companies wouldn't need to be involved as much as they are in public policy if they felt like the political process was working in the United States, if big problems were being solved. And let's face it, the U.S. Senate has become a place where lots of things go to die, right? Yeah. Progress on, on, you know, talking about gun, gun policy yeah. just a little bit earlier. By the way, I, I highly recommend Jamie Dimon's letter it's, I think, the longest he's ever written. But if you want to see how the world has changed, the leader of the biggest bank in the world advocating for a progressive social policy, is it's really interesting. And, and I thought, well done. And look, if McConnell is really, really believes that we should all stay out of politics, meaning business leaders, there are ways for him to help achieve that. He can turn down political donations. And, and I think, Mike, this is going to be over the next year or two, the big issue from a public affairs and public policy standpoint for companies is what they do with their political money, mm-hmm. who they support. And we saw this past weekend, it was reported in the Wall Street Journal, up to a hundred CEOs getting together on a phone call and talking about what they can do to fight voter suppression legislation in the United States, including potentially ending investments in states that are restricting voting rights. Yeah. And I saw that Ken Chenault and uh, yeah. Ken Frazier kind of leading the charge on that. Yeah. So, um, so say good for Jamie Dimes. Yeah. So, so last news item, which is, is, is interesting. I was, I was actually listening to a podcast on this and then saw another piece in the New York Times and that's the, the concept of documenting vaccinations, what some people are calling a vaccine passport. And this concept is kind of being taken to new levels, and they're looking at electronic verification. And, and it really started back in February. Israel's government began issuing its digital green pass to people who had been vaccinated. And it's required to enter places like restaurants, hotels, and theaters Mm -hmm. where a larger number of people are gathered. Since then, they've got 
I, I guess there's now some governments, but airlines, drugstore chains, lots of different other entities have begun using privately controlled digital systems to verify health credentials. Most are using systems, including one called Common Pass mm -hmm. and the International Air Transport Association's own system, Travel Pass on kind of a trial basis to try and verify, you know, people who've tested negative for coronavirus or people who've actually received their vaccines. And in fact, even New York State, your home state, became the first government in the U.S. to implement such a system with its Excelsior Pass, which it developed with IBM. But governors in Florida and Texas have vowed to block any such system in their states, calling it governmental overreach and invasion of privacy. Even the Biden administration has said that the federal government will not be involved in creating a vaccine passport. Uh, Gary, is that the right decision or is this a case of, of a politician taking the path of least resistance and giving in to the American notion of privacy, even though such system might be of benefit to public health? Well, there has to be, Mike, some verification capability for vaccination. I mean, just, you know, from a practical standpoint, Boston University announced last week that students in the fall will have to be vaccinated and demonstrate that they are. And it's true of other uh, Northeastern and other universities that I've seen do the same thing. And you and I, you know, you and I traveled all over the world in business and often you would have to bring your vaccination records. That's right. You as you traveled and uh, to certain parts of the world. So I'm not so much made uncomfortable by it. And I, I think it would be- I, I actually feel like I'd be safer. <laughs> exactly. And, and it doesn't in any way infringe on my privacy, I, I don't think. Some people are choosing not to be vaccinated. But again, that's a personal decision. And, you know, if, if that may disqualify them, if that's the right word, or prevent them from taking place in such activities. But again, that's more, that's a, a, a decision based on their own personal judgment and freedom. So I don't have a problem with it, but I can see optically some people Again, culture wars can 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 make hay out of this. Yeah, it seems so crazy to me because we do so many other things in life and through government that require us to to take certain actions, not because of what it means for us, but what it means for others around us. Exactly. You know, we have auto insurance, right? <laughs> We're forced to buy automobile insurance if, if, if we're a driver of an automobile. And the reason for that is be not so much just to protect ourselves, but to protect others around us. And so anyway, I was a little, one, when I first heard about Israel, I thought, oh, that's kind of a neat idea. I hope more people are doing that. And then all of a sudden, it kind of caught me off guard when I had heard that the Florida governor was against it. And then this past week, you know, kind of hearing from the White House press secretary that they were not going to go down that path was a little disappointed. Yeah, agree. Anyway, we've got a, uh, a fun show and let's go talk to Kendra Butters. We're approaching Patriots Day here in Massachusetts. And while there will be a traditional early morning Red Sox game at Fenway Park, of course, minus a few fans this year because of the COVID pandemic, there will not be a Boston Marathon because of COVID. Look, a marathon, having run a few of these, is a massive logistical undertaking in any city. And our guest today has had to deal with an on and off and on schedule for the race over the past year or so. Kendra Butters is the Director of Communications for the Boston Athletic Association, which was formed in 1887 and is the organizer, of course, of the Boston Marathon and other running events. Kendra had the good fortune, I'm using rabbit ears here for listeners, to join the BAA 
in this role just over a year ago, and that means she hasn't really seen normal yet. Uh, the 2020 in-person race was canceled because of COVID, and that was the first cancellation of the Boston Marathon in 124 years. And this year, the races, which is typically held in April, has been moved to the fall, to October, actually. Kendra formerly worked in marketing and community engagement at Harvard University and Boston College, and we're thrilled to have her on the crux. Welcome, Kendra. Thank you. So the Boston Marathon's been around since 1897. And as everyone knows, not only in Boston, I but around the world, it's a deeply rooted deeply rooted in the Boston community and particularly so become a symbol of the city's strength since the bombing in 2013. Just to give us a start here, Kendra, can you give us an idea of the size of the event, participants, staff, volunteers, spectators, et cetera? Absolutely. So the BAA actually shockingly only has about 30 full-time staff members and for the marathon every year, we really kind of scale up. So that would include about 10,000 volunteers. And then we have an organizing committee that's comprised of city, state, police, fire, et cetera, representatives. And that's about 100 folks who meet regularly to really help pull the entire event together. And in a traditional year, we'll typically see about, you know, 30,000 participants. This upcoming year, we'll have 20,000 participants who race the, the actual marathon. Wow. Now, our viewers, or our listeners can't see this, but behind you is your first Boston Marathon race bid. What, what year is that from, Kendra? So that's from 2015, the first time I ran as a member of Teddy's team, raising awareness for stroke awareness and, and heart disease. Oh, nice. So you've done the marathon a couple of times. I've, I've done it twice. I wouldn't say that I'm a marathoner. I'm more of a back of the pack. And <laughs> I have a lot of respect for folks like you, Gary, who qualified, but it's a, it's a different beast to be out on that course for five hours. So I think it's almost like doing two marathons in one right. I think you're right. I think you're right. So uh, one thing I always, you know, I still have my, I ran 20 years ago. I still have my outfit, you know, the jacket and you're wearing one today. And it's, you know, it's an important memento for me, I guess, you know, that I achieved something like that. But the unicorn is in on the breast patch of, and it's the logo of the marathon. I've always wanted to ask somebody, why a unicorn? I think this will probably be the most disappointing answer, but no one really knows. We have an, an archivist and a historian, Gloria Ratty, who Runner's World actually recently said is the women's running pioneer you've never heard of. And so we've used it as an opportunity to ask her because she, she knows everything Boston Marathon and BAA. And she does not have an answer. There is, you know, a, a bit of a legend that perhaps it came from one of the founding members of the BAA from their family. But really, uh, at the end of the day, no one knows the genesis of the unicorn as kind of this logo and ultimate mascot of the Boston Marathon. Well, maybe that makes it a little bit more interesting. It does. <laughs> There's a lot of lore behind cool. it. <laughs> so just to set the scene for our listeners, a lot of whom, of course, Kendra, are communications leaders like yourself, you said there are 30 full-time folks working on, on BA, at BAA. How many people doing communications? There are three total, including myself. And what's the scope? Do you guys do the, all the community engagement in that as well, too? So a lot of, you know, community engagement, especially as we're launching new initiatives or, you know, distributing grants, but it, it really is a little bit of everything from public relations to crisis communications, executing our, our marketing kind of campaigns and sponsorships, if you will. So really a, a little bit of everything with a, a small, but quite nimble wow. team. Terrific. Hi, Kendra. Welcome to the show. I, I would love to get your take on what that la what the last year has been like for you how was it coming into a new job and then suddenly having to adjust your communication strategy and response to kind of frequently changing public health restrictions and events absolutely so i started in mid-january of 2020 with the baa 
And that's traditionally a time when things are a little bit more solidified for a traditional April race. So I really came in kind of with the mindset to observe a little bit, really see the inner workings behind the scenes, because, you know, as you can imagine, you really do not know how the kind of the marathon comes together, especially in a communications capacity until you've actually lived through one. So I, I really came in with kind of an, an open mindset to observe and implement changes as necessary. And that changed very early and pretty quickly. So we really began just starting to do some scenario planning with, you know, a few, if this, then that, you know, ways that we would either share releases or updates and kind of strategize. And then really, I'd say in probably February and then early March, our overall communications strategy and our planning really shifted from being event focused. So knowing the set event, the set date and kind of backwards planning from there to really just planning in real time for ever-changing data. So while, you know, I came into it thinking, all right, I'm going to look at some past media guides, communications plans, and enhance as necessary, I found myself really just looking across industry to see what other folks were doing and how they were sharing updates. So, for example, South by Southwest was, you know, an event in an organization that I was really looking at to see how they were sharing updates. So not in the running space at all, but I thought they did such a great job that we actually kind of looked to them as a, a model for even kind of developing our race updates page and, and things of that nature. So really, we just had to become entirely nimble and just ultimately try to be as transparent as possible to share what we knew when we knew it, but then also knowing what we didn't know and that it would change pretty often. Uh, Gary, in introducing you, mentioned that you'd worked in community engagement at Harvard and at Boston College. And I'm just kind of curious as, as I think about your career, what did those jobs entail? What made you jump to athletics and how, how did they prepare you for what you're faced with today? Yeah, so, you know, I've always been interested in sports and working in kind of a more traditional sports capacity. So my undergrad really focused on sports journalism and, you know, just a more traditional sense. So, you know, I, I left my undergrad interviewing with Nesson, ESPN, and Teach for America. And I ultimately ended up doing Teach for America in Mississippi for two years after college and, you know, started the school's first ever softball program and, and really still felt, found ways to be involved in the sports sense. And afterwards, you know, really wanted to work for organizations that essentially gave back to their communities and that had pretty significant impact. So at Boston College, I worked in kind of your more traditional higher ed sense, working on some graduate student retention and recruitment, specifically for their education school. So redesigning websites, working on campaigns, brochures, things of that nature, while also going for my MBA there. And then ultimately moved over to Harvard and worked for their public affairs office, but really focused on the work that Harvard does with city of Cambridge and Boston residents. Mm. So in particular, I focused on the Alston Brighton neighborhood of Boston and mm. Harvard has what's called the Harvard Ed Portal. That's essentially a community center. So I would work on everything from, you know, promoting maybe a concert with Yo-Yo Ma one day to a faculty lecture the next. And even, you know, programming throughout school vacation week for students and, and kids that lived in the area. So really just working on building awareness of these great opportunities and these great programs that folks don't typically associate with Harvard since they really think of that kind of academic and the student or faculty focus there. So a great challenge, but it was, you know, always rewarding to see when people who had never heard of an event or an opportunity came through the space and were really shocked upon learning more about it. Yeah, well, and I have to think that that community outreach has to be important to what you're doing now. How much of what you do requires you to like reach out to the city of Boston as we're looking at runners going through the streets and through the parks? And, and also to what extent is part of your job also working with kind of the major race sponsors like John Hancock? Yeah, so those are two significant areas of, of the work just across the BAA. So our, our team, especially our operations team, meets regularly 
and speaks regularly with representatives from the eight cities and towns that comprise the marathon route, you know, in particular Boston. And we also recently, I'd say, I think it was September of 2020, convened a COVID-19 medical and event operations advisory group that's really comprised of physicians, epidemiologists, representatives from the cities and towns to really advise our leadership and our, you know, staff on hosting a safe event in, you know, best practices, essentially in this, this time of COVID. So we work really closely with all those folks and we, we ensure that our operations team is going back to the cities and towns to kind of share what our event plan is while also stressing that we're going to continue to listen to the science and really adapt the plan as needed and as more information and data becomes publicly available. But a large component of that too is working with John Hancock, you know, another Boston institution. I think we're entering our 36th year as John Hancock as our principal sponsor. So ensuring that they know really what we're doing. They're, you know, completely in the loop on decisions that are being made and when they're being made, but also just making sure that they have just an open line for any questions that they they also may have since it is a long history there. But with things changing, there's certainly questions as those development developments and changes happen. Now with Patriots Day approaching, we normally think it's 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 time for the race, right. and, and, and I mean it's it's almost synonymous because that's the traditional day, the the Boston Marathon is held, and yet now because of the pandemic, you're looking at having it take place in the fall for the very first time, October 11th. Moving a mammoth event like this to another time of year must be quite challenging and quite an undertaking. What is the Boston Athletic Association needed to consider to make this move? So there's no shortage of things that have been considered, I would say. <laughs> it's, it's been really eye-opening for me too, just as you know, we covered this is going to be, you know, my first in-person event that I'm still working on behind the scenes. And so I've learned a lot too, just from our operations team and other folks across the board of things that we have been considering. So whether it's honestly construction on the course or like, what are the potholes like in October versus potholes in April? To me, that was kind of like the most, you know, I would say minutia of the details that's really being considered that just kind of, to me, seemed like one of those things from a runner perspective, like, yeah, you want to have a, a smooth course, but also just taking into account heat during the time of year. So, you know, April, as we all know, the weather can range from, you know, it can range from heat, it can range to torrential rain or just kind of a beautiful spring day. But October being our first fall event, you know, perhaps we might have snow, it might be a little bit colder. So thinking about that, so also thinking about when the sun will set. So how do we ensure that, you know, the course is still properly lit or that, you know, folks are, when they might be crossing the finish line, have some, some sunlight left in the day. As a Yankee fan, I would also say, say, God forbid, the, the, the Boston Red Sox are playing a playoff game the same day. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if they did play, it would just really, I think, be quite symbolic. And I think it'd be a great way to round it all out since they traditionally do play on Marathon Monday. I think we'd love that. But, you know, we're also, we have to just take into account events that were already happening in the greater Boston area. So head of the Charles Oh, right. Yeah. yeah, I had a daughter, I had another daughter who rode, rode in that. Yeah. Yeah. So factoring in that and yeah. various other events along the cities and towns and along the course. And then also, you know, the other world marathon majors, we are one of the six yeah. and all of the races are now, I think in a six week window in the fall. So taking those into account to ensure that, you know, we know we can kind of plan collaboratively in that regard too. So, you know, I've often dreamed, Kendra, of like being the head of communications for something I love, like the Yankees or the Tour de France, you know, something like that. So I just want to say that I'm highly qualified, I think, to work on the Boston Marathon because (laughs) I'm the race director here in my hometown of the Ghostly Gallup 5K. There you go. And we get, you know... We get a couple hundred people a year, and I'm the only communication staff as well. 
Yeah. So I think I might send my resume into the Boston Marathon. <laughs> you know, do it. You know, it may be one of those things. Be careful what you ask for. But anyway, so the the marathon, the Boston Marathon, you know, isn't like most marathons. At least for average runners, you have to qualify to get in, and there are qualifying times for the race. And Mike, I just want to point out that I did qualify for the race. Um, How old were you? Uh, <laughs> I know. To look at me now, you would say, well, you must have been 17. But actually, so I qualified and I wanted to run a sub three, sub three hour uh, marathon. Yeah. And I did the first half. I was fine and it wasn't my day. And I just blew up in the second half. So I'm humble bragging here. <laughs> I ended up running like a 320. Uh. And uh, so it took me like two hours to run the second half of the race. And anyway, it's a, it's a so long... did you so did you break it like heartbreak hill? I, I broke like a, like at 13.1 miles, the halfway point, the wheels came off, Mike. It was just it was embarrassing. I actually ran the Boston Marathon in my Yankee hat. That's dangerous. It's dangerous. That's and I thought it was <laughs> it was motivation to keep moving. That's what I thought, because if I stopped, I'd, I'd, I'd be in trouble. But enough about me. So this year, you, you, Kendra, you mentioned that typically you have 30,000 runners in person. And this year, you're going to have 20,000. And that's because of social distancing restrictions, I guess, or, or guidelines. But you're also going to have virtual runners up to 70,000. Did I get that right? Is it that yes. many? So. Tell me how the team, your communications team, how do you prepare? I, I think it, the registration opens soon. How yeah, do you prepare so for something that kind of deluge? I worry about my 200 that I have to register here for the Ghostly Gallup. Absolutely. And our virtual registration opened at the end of March and we actually had, you know, short technical difficulties just because we, we did have so many folks who were kind of queuing in our system that we couldn't even get in it ourselves to activate our registration form. But luckily we quickly remedied that I think in 15 minutes, but we had, you know, we were talking about our team is still all virtual, but we'll do little kind of war rooms on our team's platform so there'll be, you know, a large group of us who are all logged in at the same time, who will just be sharing kind of real time updates. So, you know, things we might be seeing on social, if someone who's trying to register is experiencing a glitch, you know, we'll just share that on our, our virtual check-in. So we were all logged into that and saw the 15 minutes kind of go by of trying to get the system on board. And we were joking that it was the longest 15 minutes of the pandemic probably because we're just <laughs> but luckily you know we uh have a great team that works on our salesforce platform to be able to really quickly fix it but really taking some of kind of those best practices to apply to the in-person race which opens on april 20th so new this year just a couple things that we've enhanced so one of them is uh, a virtual hub if you will for registration so this will not only be the place where everyone comes to register for all their events, it contains everyone's race history. So Gary, you'd be able to look up your past oh, time. No. Uh, <laughs> That's scary. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> for the marathon. So you can, you can kind of see almost like your Boston Marathon and Boston Athletic Association nice. transcript, if you will, of any events you've participated in. Kind of eliminates fishtails though. <laughs> yeah, it does. Who, who was it Mike was it Paul Ryan when he was running for vice president lowered his marathon time by like 20 minutes 30 minutes <laughs> marathoners here's big Kendra knows this marathoners remember their times <laughs> oh. oh yeah yeah well well and, and just having had a daughter who was a long distance runner you know she knew by event how she had done yeah totally totally it's that and you, you would know if someone has a time that seems a little bit quicker than it should be. And even our team, our athlete services team really goes in and, and they, they check all these things. So, you know, you can see if someone was in a particular wave, but they finish much quicker. It's kind of a, a, a sign of, Red flag, all right, yeah. how did that happen? You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah they, they took the subway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Switching topics a bit. 
sports has become a, a hotbed of political activism, you know, pushed by the public, sometimes players, leagues and teams are becoming involved on racial issues, social issues. You know, very recently we saw Major League Baseball take a stand relative to the state of Georgia adopting a law that makes it more difficult for people to vote. They've decided to move the all-star game from Atlanta to Denver as a consequence. You work for one of the world's great sporting events. How do you view these developments and does that calculate into your planning at all? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we have to ensure that the Boston Marathon is a place really where everyone feels welcome. And we regularly ask ourselves, as a team, you know, how are we ensuring that? How are we making sure that people feel safe? They feel that they can participate in our events, that they have access to participate in our events. And so this has really been part of, I would say, almost a year-long discussion that our team has been having across our entire staff about ensuring that. And so we recently, just last month, uh, launched our first ever vision statement, which essentially says that the BAA is committed to a world where everyone can access and benefit from running in a healthy lifestyle. And that is truly what we are now looking at all of our individual teams and our work to ensure that it really kind of folds up into that. So how are we ensuring that in our communications work or, you know, our marketing work and our community and youth engagement. And so that certainly informed our planning and thinking about providing greater access, providing greater opportunity to the sport of running, but also to our events across the board. So I think just uh, as an organization, it's a time to make sure we're reflecting on that, make sure we understand what, you know, any issues are and that we are prepared to respond to them in the appropriate way as an organization. Now, the Boston Marathon is much more than just a road race. It's a citywide celebration. I know many measures have been put in place, or I'm sure you've been thinking about them in terms of social distancing, safe space for runners and for for spectators. We don't know what the world is really going to look like come October. What kind of plans, what kinds of messages are you getting out there for both participants and spectators? That's a great question. And, you know, we're excited to get back to the in-person race, but we want to make sure that everyone is safe and that it's, you know, our volunteers are safe, our participants and the community. So we're really working on a campaign for this year that will really focus on safe running and safe spectating. And just really, you know, as I mentioned before, we want to make sure we're nimble. So we also want to ensure that we are kind of rolling it out at the appropriate time. So continuing to just look at, you know, the data and science as it relates to what we might message to our spectators, but that could be, you know, how to uh, safely run through the Wellesley scream tunnel. So maybe you're not kissing a stranger on the cheek this year. Maybe it's, you know, virtual or, you know, at a distance high five, but still kind of keeping the, the spirit of the Boston marathon there, the, you know, keeping everyone engaged and, you know, really providing a way to bring this back, you know, get back to being on the course, but we're truly looking at every angle. And, you know, we have a, an education committee that has been meeting regularly to talk about what is our messaging in not only what we send from a physical, you know, print capacity to participants, but what are we posting on our website? What does our social campaign look like? And how do we just make sure that everyone is is safe, but still can, you know, enjoy themselves and, and have fun. And, it, you know, it seems the like the spectator part, Kendra, will be the hardest communication strategy for that, because it is such a great day, a, a celebration in the city. Absolutely. And, you know, especially since the marathon goes through so many cities and towns, just making sure that we're closely working with those partners there and, and making sure that they have the support that they need, but that we're also just in step and in line with what we are communicating to folks who are coming out to the marathon. And, you know, hopefully it will, we'll be in a, a place where we can still have groups socially distanced, yeah. but gather together and cheer everyone on. But that's the one piece that I think we really want to wait on to exactly. publicly yeah. have the most accurate information when we do well and it's such a great event and not just a great event for the runners but really for uh, the spectators you see people with signs you see people cheering people on it, it, it's quite wonderful 
Yeah, but Mike, not in the Wellesley Scream Tunnel for me. <laughs> well, that was the place where I got the most abuse for the Yankee hat. Well, when my when my daughter Dorothy ran in it, one of my other daughters, Lucy, had created a sign, and we were positioned like two thirds along the way or three quarters along the way of the race, and she had had this huge sign, and it said, "The end is near." <laughs> That's the way I felt, Mike. <laughs> All right, Kendra, before we go, I want to mention that the BAA, through your events, you also raise significant amounts of money for local charities. And, and, and what's the focus of the charitable side of BAA? Yeah, so, you know, as I mentioned, we really are focused on continuing to provide greater access to the sport. And last year we donated 225,000 to Boston public schools to provide fitness packs in every Boston high school. So essentially athletic equipment that phys ed teachers can easily pack up and store, but really engage their classrooms and really working with the educators to provide them with uh, what they need exactly. But we're looking to really expand on how we're continuing to provide that type of opportunity and access. We also this year launched donations at the point of registration to our official charity partners. And we have seen that, you know, our participants are extremely generous and, you know, continue to give back and support these nonprofits across greater Boston, whose missions focus on health and wellness. So really just looking for ways that we can continue to connect the, the charitable element with, you know, the running and fitness and wellness and continuing to expand from there. Well, that's terrific. Well, look for an application from me to join your staff uh, soon. Absolutely. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and I don't think I, well, I can't do the virtual. I'm not in any kind of shape to do the virtual this year, but maybe, do you plan to continue the virtual side of it? Do you guys, have you made a decision whether to do that long-term? We haven't made a decision on that just yet. You know, it's the the virtual, especially this year, it's our 125th anniversary. And so ah. we, we wanted to do something special for the 125th. And that yeah. predates me, that predates, you know, 2020. So we had already thought about a larger scale event for the 125th, which, you know, for obvious reasons can't happen. But my understanding is that for our 100th anniversary, we provided a little bit more of a lottery, if you will, for entry. Right, so right. looking, the virtual is open to the first 70,000. So anyone can enter it. There's no time limit. It's just needs oh, to good. be completed in a continuous attempt. So you could run, walk it. But again, it just kind of comes back to how we're looking to just have greater access to, you know, the the unicorn, if you will, so. Terrific, terrific. Well, thank you, and, and Kendra, this has been great. I, I love, a couple times you mentioned having to be nimble and to adjust, and clearly you have. It's been quite a year for you, and, and uh, I hope there is some return to normalcy for you very soon, and, and looking forward to spectating maybe in October at the marathon, not, not as much participating. So Kendra Butters, thank you for being on the cross. Thank you, Gary. And I'll keep an eye out for your Yankee hat along the course. Okay. <laughs> yeah, <they're really> <laughs> Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Crux and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter. And you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.com dot org.